Welcome to the Music Ed Forward podcast, transforming students, teachers, and communities through music education. My name is Nissa Brown with Music Ed Forward, musicedforward.com. You can follow Music Ed Forward on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Be sure you don't miss an episode by subscribing on Stitcher, Spotify, or Apple Podcasts. Welcome to episode 12 of the Music Ed Forward podcast. Onward, a resilience read. To celebrate the new year, we've been featuring episodes about resilience building in its very many forms. Today continues that conversation with a review of the fabulous book, Onward, Cultivating Emotional Resilience in Educators. Before we jump into the book itself, I wanted to introduce the author, Elena Aguilar, who, P.S., will be on the next episode of this podcast, talking with us about resilience and equity. Ms. Aguilar has trained thousands of educators across the United States and abroad in transformational coaching. She's the author of six highly acclaimed books, including The Art of Coaching, The Art of Coaching Teams, and Coaching for Equity. She is a regular contributor to Edutopia and ASCD's Educational Leadership. And she was a blogger for Edweek Teacher for many years. Elena's expertise derives from 25 years as a classroom teacher, instructional coach, and leadership coach working in diverse school environments. In her role as a consultant, she's partnered with leaders in public and private organizations across the U.S. and abroad. It was Elena's experiences, humanity, and values that shine so clearly through her work, which is why I wanted to share her book on the podcast with you today. So what was the name of that book again? It's called Onward, Cultivating Emotional Resilience in Educators. There's also an amazing workbook that accompanies the book for those of you who might be interested. So how did I come into contact with this book? Well, a wonderful colleague who teaches at an international school in Hong Kong and I were talking just as the world was shutting down in early 2020 due to the pandemic. She was in Hong Kong and their school had been shut down longer than schools in my, in my part of the world around Amsterdam. She and I were talking about how she was coping with the pandemic, and she mentioned this book. Actually, they had a team of teachers at her school who were using the book as a book study even before the pandemic had begun. But wow, was it coming in handy in 2020. Which piqued my curiosity. I mean, resilience is something that we have been hearing about an education for years, both for teachers and students, but it has become an absolute non-negotiable the past year or so. Increasing our resilience has been the only way to balance the ways in which we've been repeatedly and ongoingly challenged. Without self-compassion, care, and resilience, we'd be in a heap on the floor. And let's be honest, some moments that still might happen. The struggle has been beyond real for teachers this past year. So I may or may not have read slash listened to this book multiple times. I am a huge fan of Audible, and I actually listened to the book twice on Audible, and then I bought a hard copy of the book. I wanted to hold it in my hands. I also purchased the workbook that goes along with the book. So to share the book with you, I'd like to share the outline, talk a little bit about how it's organized, and then some of my favorite gems from the book. I chose the sections to share with you today based on the clips and bookmarks I selected in Audible. The chapters where I place the most clips and bookmarks are the ones I'm sharing with you today. If you're listening to the podcast as it is released and you're interested in this book, keep your eyes open for a two-week course for music educators on resilience that I'll be facilitating. 
The course will feature this book as a text and will also feature a live Zoom call with the fabulous Jasmine Fripp, the passionate Black educator on resilience and community. If you're on the Music Ed Forward mailing list, you'll be the first to know. So let's dive into the book. This fabulous book is organized into 12 chapters. Each chapter features one, a habit that builds resilience, two, a dive into a specific emotion that connects to the chapter's habit, and three, a disposition and how it connects to the chapter's resilience building habit. Further, one of the reasons this book resonated so deeply with me is that in many chapters, Ms. Aguilar includes an acknowledging context section, and I quote from the book, in which our social, political, historical, cultural context is recognized, and the connections are drawn between our context and our work in schools. In fact, the topic of next week's podcast with Ms. Aguilar will expand on acknowledging context and focus on equity and resilience in our classrooms and schools. For leaders, additionally, the author also includes specific sections of the book that address ways to implement the ideas she includes with fellow educators and teams. She is a master teacher and a coach of coaches, and her recommendations are truly golden. A sampling of the 12 resilience building habits. These are also titles of chapters. Know yourself. Understand emotions. Tell empowering stories. Ride the wave of change. Cultivate compassion. Be here now. Build community. Those are a sampling of the 12 chapters of the titles, which are also resilience building habits. Ms. Aguilar suggests that the first three chapters of the book be read in order, and then she invites us to read the chapters that apply to the moment. So those first three chapters that she recommends we read in order are Know Yourself, Understand Emotions, and Tell Empowering Stories. Some of the greatest takeaways and reminders from the Know Yourself chapter was that it is our deep understanding of ourselves that allows us to navigate the world wisely and as joyfully as possible. During the rush, crazy, and ever-changing landscape of life during a pandemic, it is so easy to neglect the important work of deep listening and knowing of ourselves. Ms. Aguilar reminds us that this is also connected to emotional intelligence. When we know ourselves, we can respond to our state of being and emotions with more kindness and compassion, which she also touches on in chapter two. This is also such an important reminder as we navigate relationships with our students during the pandemic. It's easy when we're lost in the distractions and the moving targets of pandemic teaching to miss seeing those beautiful hearts and minds and strengths of our students not because we mean to or because we want to, but because the world is spinning too fast and tech fails and there's another schedule change and, and, and. Finally, on this topic, Ms. Aguilar points out these same factors, self-knowledge and knowledge of others, can impact our relationship with our leaders. 
On good days, we can find ourselves dancing with the expectations of administrators, depending on our situation. Although, thank thank goodness, many of us also have many wise, compassionate, aware, empowering leaders, thankfully, at our schools. But the the reminder remains, knowing ourselves and seeing others deeply can help us navigate situations with as much care and integrity and potentially less friction as possible. This book is filled with practical suggestions as well. Ms. Aguilar recommends taking or retaking a Myers-Briggs type of test. Personally, Nissa speaking, my favorite free resource is the 16 personalities test. You can see the show notes for the link. Musicedforward.com slash podcast slash 12. Further, Ms. Aguilar emphasizes the importance of our sociopolitical identity in terms of knowing ourselves. On page 29 of the book, she says, and I quote, let's begin by getting clear on the definition of the term sociopolitical identity. Sociopolitical identity refers to the social groups to which you belong, which may align with your race or ethnicity, gender, background, and sexual orientation, and the complex way that these intersect and influence the amount of power you have in different social spaces. These elements of your identity may be inseparable from other aspects of self, such as beliefs and values, personality and psyche, because we're so deeply influenced by our sociopolitical identity, which has been a part of us since birth. For example, it's likely that your values were shaped by your cultural heritage and that your personality may have been influenced by social constructions of gender. It's really hard to know who you are without an understanding of the social, political, and cultural construction of self. End quote. I deeply appreciate the inclusion of sociopolitical identity in considering resilience for ourselves, but it's also inseparable from the anti-bias work that so many music educators are currently working on in themselves, their classrooms, their curriculum, and their schools. We can't move forward personally in our relationships with our students or collectively without this work on sociopolitical identity. Accordingly, in the Acknowledging Context section of this chapter, the author talks about dominant culture, which is, quote, the most powerful, widespread, or influential culture within a social group, organization, or society that may have multiple cultures present, unquote. Ms. Aguilar reminds us that, quote, dominant culture can make it hard to know ourselves, unquote, and highlights a couple of stories of educators with whom she has worked where dominant culture made the expression of their most authentic selves challenging. That's one of the other things I love about this book. It's filled with stories of diverse educators struggling with challenges of identity, vision, power, privilege, community, and the mix of things that create the beauty and the complexity of our schools. The second chapter I'd like to highlight is chapter three, Tell Empowering Stories. I'm going to open with a quote. This is from page 70 of the book. Quote, words shape how we understand ourselves and make sense of the world. We weave the scattered facts and moments of our lives into narratives. We give the events of our life form, meaning, and longevity. Words bring the essence of things into being. Stories tell us who we are and what is possible for us. Unquote. 
These same aspects of stories can impact how we see others, our students, our colleagues, our communities, our schools. And it's beholden upon us to be aware of these narratives. These stories hold such power in how we see ourselves, how we talk to ourselves, how we envision what's possible for us, what we think is possible in terms of how we change or how we empower others. And those same stories that we tell also impact how we see our students. What stories do we tell about our students? Who do we think that they are? What stories do we tell about them, whether or not it's true of who they are? Those stories make a difference about what we expect of them, how we see them, and ultimately how effective we are as their teacher. So Ms. Aguilar outlines the elements of empowered storytelling. So when we think about being aware of the stories that we're telling, and instead of just telling the stories that we've always always told without awareness of them, without conscious understanding of what we're doing, without perhaps even be a, being aware that we have a narrative in the background that's going, empowered storytelling is using our stories uh, to empower ourselves or to empower our students. So empowered storytelling. So here are some of the elements um, as Ms. Aguilar outlines. Be aware of thoughts. So bringing the unconscious into conscious awareness. Be aware of thoughts. Recognize and shift distorted thoughts. So once we become conscious of these stories, we can recognize what those stories are and think, oh gosh, I didn't realize I was saying that. Or, oh gosh, there's bias in that thought. There's bias in that story that I didn't even realize. Maybe it's what we grew up with. Um, it's the story that the rest of our community tells, right? But once we recognize it, we can shift those thoughts once we're aware of them. Uproot problematic beliefs. So if we have beliefs that are not serving us or not serving our students, getting to the core of them, uprooting them, figuring out why they're there. What work do we need to do to uproot or unseat them? So uproot problematic beliefs. The next step is craft new stories. So once we're aware of what we think, we've recognized it, and we've uprooted some of the beliefs that are at the cause of those stories, we can craft new stories based on the current reality. We can recognize our organizational narratives. It's the next suggestion. So what are the stories that everyone around me is telling? And are, are those empowered stories? Are, are those true stories? Or is it just the story that we've told over time and so we can continue to tell it? And then the final one is share your stories. So once we've go gone through this process of becoming aware of our stories and um, shifting anything that is distorted, uprooting the problem, problematic beliefs that are at the core of those stories, crafting some new stories, paying attention to what our organizational narratives are, then we can share our stories, right? We can share the stories that um, that are true for us and the way that we've come to um, understand empowered stories as opposed to the stories that we might have told before. 
So the author offers specific examples of this empowered storytelling process in her book, um, both the book and the workbook, actually. So if you'd like to work with this more, there's lots of wonderful material for you to do this. One of the reminders that I appreciated most, especially in the midst of pandemic teaching, is the reminder that our core beliefs are an undercurrent of our understanding and experience minute to minute in the world, right? So it's that background. We might even not not even be aware of it, but we're making sense of the world based on our beliefs and the stories that we tell that we might not even be aware of. So here's a quote from page 80. Quote, problematic core beliefs are those you hold to be true all of the time. They're global, not situational. And one of the problems with such core beliefs is that because you filter, because they filter your worldview for you, they also filter out the evidence against them. I'm going to say that last line again. One of the problems with such core beliefs is that because they filter your world for you, they also filter out the evidence against them. If you have a really hard time believing a more balanced interpretation of an event, then it's likely there's a core belief in the way. Unquote. So if there's anything I've learned in pandemic teaching and living, it's that any unprocessed pain or unresolved challenge in my life has come up and demanded attention. Many of our normal coping, distraction, and healing strategies have been altered or removed from our daily lives. And many folks I know are dealing with dealing full on with these limiting or problematic core beliefs. Normally I say, Whatever's coming up for you is just the next thing that's asking to be cared for and healed. And while I still believe that ultimately, many of us don't have the same support structures and outlets that would help us ultimately care for and heal the things that are coming up during the pandemic. All of us are dealing with magnified, limiting core beliefs right now, best I can tell. And we deeply need one another to be able to share those stories, to start to be aware of those stories, and to start to process through some of them. Because those limiting or problematic core beliefs are why we tell the stories that we tell. Also, anything that's not in our conscious awareness is operating behind the scenes right? Maybe that goes without saying, but if it's operating behind the scenes without our awareness, it's really hard to catch. And it could be ultimately causing a lot of problems in the stories that we tell about the world, the ways that we see ourselves. So this reflection process is so important to bring us back to understanding our stories, understanding these core beliefs, which then gives us the ability to work with them and potentially resolve them. So building resilience in ourselves through our stories is a non-negotiable part of this journey. And we also have the opportunity and responsibility to do the same for our students, our classrooms, and our schools. At the end of the chapter, the author outlines a process for storytelling, for collective empowerment, and deconstructing dominant narratives. So those are some very classroom and school-specific ways to apply these ideas of the stories that we tell and how our core beliefs could play into those.
but it applies them more broadly to uh, our students, our classrooms, and our schools. Ms. Aguilar goes on in the Acknowledging Context section to say how vital it is to understand organizational narratives. And she highlights that it's imperative to know that we know the narrative within the organization and we don't let our own narratives be defined by the organization, especially those that contain bias. We have the power to deconstruct those narratives and tell our own story and create the space for others to do the same. And I'm also going to suggest that not only do we have the power to do that as educators, our students need that from us. We have the responsibility to do that ongoingly to their benefit, to make sure that we are seeing, loving, and serving every student in front of us. All right. The final chapter I'm going to highlight is chapter six. It likely goes without saying why I had so many bookmarks in the take care of yourself chapter right now. I appreciate the way that the author approached this chapter. It was without shame or blame, just practical support. On page 150, she starts by saying that there are four main reasons, in her opinion, that we don't take care of ourselves. Number one, a knowledge gap. Number two, a skills gap. Number three, a will gap. And number four, an emotional intelligence gap. So in a knowledge gap, we don't know what to do. We need more information. In a skills gap, we don't know how to do something. We need more skills. In the will gap, we don't think we really need to take care of ourselves, right? We don't think that that's necessary. And then the emotional intelligence gap, we don't think we're worthy of self-care. Or we think that others are more worthy, so we take care of them first and foremost. Ms. Aguilar goes on to say that often there are overlaps in these gaps as well. After reading these four, I felt like she called me out, but in the best way. Yes, I'm guilty of a couple of these, but ultimately it has nothing to do with guilt. It's about awareness and recommitting to the self-care with self-compassion. So this committing and recommitting to self-care during the pandemic seems like an ongoing process, and something tells me I am not alone in that. This chapter goes on to talk about martyrdom. We know what that looks like in schools for sure. Perfectionism, <clears throat> called out again, but in a super life-affirming way. Saying no. I know it's not just me struggling with saying no during pandemic teaching. Positive self-perception. Most of us feel like we aren't the best teachers we could be right now. And balance. I think the elusiveness of balance speaks for itself right now. Am I right? In short, this chapter spoke to me in a million positive ways and outlined positive, empathetic, practical suggestions for building resilience through self-care. Hashtag chapter six. There are resources to support this podcast, like the 16 personalities tests and info on Elena Aguilar's books on the podcast page at musicandforward.com slash podcast slash 12. So I could go on and on about this book. I'm rereading it again now in preparation for the two-week Restoring Resilience course we'll be starting on March 1st. I'll be facilitating, and Ms. Jasmine Fripp will join us for a call about resilience and community. This resilience and community will have to do with ourselves as educators, but also our students and our classrooms. If you've never met Jasmine, 
She is one of the most loving, passionate teachers I've ever met. And the way that she talks about her students and the community she creates in her classroom is truly an inspiration. If you haven't already, hop on over to musicedforward.com, hop on the mailing list, and you'll be the first to know when the course opens. I can't wait for you to hear from Elena Aguilar herself next week on the podcast as we talk about resilience and equity. You won't want to miss it. Until then. If this podcast interests you today, head on over to musicedforward.com slash podcast slash 12 to find out more resources to help us build resilience. If you haven't joined us yet, please head on over to Facebook and join the e-learning and music education Facebook group for countless ideas, as well as ongoing support for these very challenging times. If you want to make sure that you catch the next episode, please remember to subscribe to the Music Ed Forward podcast on Stitcher, Spotify, or Apple Podcasts. Thank you for joining me for the Music Ed Forward podcast, transforming students, teachers, and communities through music education.